0: Hello again, everyone. Today is Sunday, November 6, 2016, here in the Philippines. My name is Tom Kuntz and this is episode 41 of My Snuckcast. First, I want to give a shout out today to two of our daughters-in-law. Today is Sarah Caitlin Stead Kuntz's birthday, who is married to our son, Garen. And on Friday, it will be Chelsea Wozden Kuntz's birthday. She's married to our son, Tyson. Caitlin and Chelsea, we love you both very much. And we are so grateful that you have chosen to be a part of our family. Happy birthday, or happy birthday to both of you. Well, today I want to talk about our visit last weekend to Siem Reap, Cambodia, and some of the lessons that I learned. So with that, let's get started. The Khmer or Angkor Empire was the predecessor state to modern Cambodia and it was a powerful Hindu-Buddhist Empire in Southeast Asia. During its existence between the 9th and the 15th century, it at times ruled over most of modern-day Laos, Thailand, and southern Vietnam. The Empire's greatest legacy is Angkor in today's Siem Reap Province in northwestern Cambodia. Angkor was the site of the capital city during the Empire's glory days, and during its peak in the 11th through the 13th centuries, it was the largest pre-industrial urban center in the world. When it was formed in 802 A.D., King Jayavarman II declared himself as a Devaraja, which means God-King. The ruins of Angkor are located near modern-day Siem Reap and consist of over 1,000 temples. The gemstone of these ruins is Angkor Wat, said to be the world's largest single religious monument. The majestic monuments of Angkor bear testimony to the power, wealth, architectural technique, and culture of the Khmer Empire. Well, While we were there last weekend, we visited seven major temple sites Angkor Wat, Bayan, Bafuan, Tapram, Pre Rup, Bante Shre and Beng Malaya. Well, there are six key learnings that I came away with from our visit that I'd like to share with you. First, there were two main religions in the Khmer Empire, Hinduism and Buddhism. Hinduism vacillated between worship of Shiva, Vishnu, and in at least one case, Brahma. Shiva, Vishnu, and Brahma form the trinity or the godhead of Hinduism. Buddhism consisted of two forms, Mahayana and Theravada. Number two, it was not uncommon for a Buddhist temple to become a Hindu temple or vice versa. And in one case, the Bayan temple, it started as a Mahayana Buddhist temple, then it became a Shivaite Hindu temple, and then later became a Theravada Buddhist temple. Three, these temples were generally built under the direction of a king as a personal memorial to himself or to a loved one. Number four, many of these kings considered themselves gods. They would go to the temple, go to the center tower, pray and meditate, and then come out and tell the people what God had said, thus making it easier to govern the people. Number five, personal faith must have meant very little. For example, King Suryavarman II built Angkor Wat as a temple dedicated to the Hindu god Vishnu. This was unusual, as most of the previous kings had been worshippers of the Hindu god Shiva. Well Varman II died in 1150, and after three successive, relatively weak kings, King Jayavarman VII, considered by most historians to be the most powerful Khmer king of all time, came to power in 1181 AD. He was only the second Khmer king to be a Buddhist but he became a prolific builder of Buddhist temples during his 48-year reign. While the king that followed him was also Buddhist, the king after that, King Jayavarman VIII, turned from his father's Buddhist faith and became a Hindu worshipper of the god Shiva. Jayavarman VIII destroyed or changed every single Buddhist image in the kingdom. As the people of the empire had little choice but to follow the faith of their monarch, it must have been confusing to be a Hindu worshipping Vishnu, then changed to being a Mahayana Buddhist, and then changed back to being a Hindu worshipping Shiva. And this all happened during a span of less than 60 years. Fortunately, these transitions were believed to have been gradual and peaceful. Number 6. The Khmer people did not keep a written record. What we know about them comes from temple inscriptions, monument stones found at the temples called stales, which reported on the political and religious deeds of the rulers, and the reports and chronicles of Chinese diplomats, traders, and travelers. Okay, so that is a very brief history and my key takeaways from the visit. I now want to share with you first a bit of context and then five gospel analogies that have occurred to me since visiting these ruins. You see, the vast majority of these temples were built mainly from sandstone, which was mined from a quarry 25 miles to the northeast. The entire city of Angkor used up far greater amounts of stone than all the Egyptian pyramids combined. Angkor Wat was made up out of up to 10 million sandstone blocks with a weight up to as much as 1.5 tons each. Sandstone was easy to carve but tended to erode and decay in the hot, humid climates. Laterite, a rock rich in iron and aluminum and much harder than sandstone, was often used for the outer wall and for hidden structural parts. Some temples, such as Pre Rup, were built with less sandstone and more clay bricks, especially on the towers. The decay of that temple, though spared from the jungle, has been accelerated simply because of the small size of the bricks. Fortunately, its foundation is laterite, which has kept it standing. Nearly all of these temples were built on sandy foundations, so moats were often built around the temples to serve as a protection in multiple ways. First, it kept the sandy foundations moist, thus helping to keep the walls from leaning and eventually falling. Second, they also provided some protection from the encroachment of the jungle. When a moat dried up, the decay of that temple accelerated quickly. In temples like Teprom and Bengmalia, The roots from jungle trees sought out crevices in the sandstone blocks where they could find water in the porous rock. These searching roots could turn a small crack into a devastating crevice that would either spell the demise of the entire structure or become a support to keep it standing. The latter, however, was an exception. During the construction of these temples, the concept of using keystones to build arches was either unknown, not understood, or simply not believed, because they didn't use them. Gabled roofs of hallways were built with large stones leaning against each other to form an arch at the top. If one of these stones slipped, then the entire roof of the archway would fall like dominoes. Okay, so here goes my series of five analogies. First, the bigger the sandstone blocks, the longer the temple stood, enduring the harsh environment of rain, heat, and humidity. There was simply more stone to erode than there was with a small clay brick. But it is also true that the larger the sandstone blocks, the more difficult to transport and build a temple. So here's lesson one. The amount of effort we put into our testimony will determine its staying power. Large sandstone blocks are like the blocks of time we dedicate to scripture study, prayer, temple worship, and serving others. Dedicating large blocks of time to these endeavors is hard, but the result is a testimony that stands up to mocking, ridicule, and persecution. Small blocks of time where we are more interested in checking the box are are like these clay bricks. We can build a structure with them, but they may not stand the test of time. Second. While laterite was not as glamorous, or as using sandstone for the exterior of the temples, since it couldn't easily be carved, and it certainly wasn't as smooth, the kings and architects constantly used sandstone. The beautiful sandstone finishes with their fine engravings were beautiful in their prime, but with time they decayed into ruins. Lesson 2 too many are tempted to dress immodestly simply because that's the style of the day and will make them appear to be beautiful or sexy as defined by the world. But immodesty often leads to immorality. Being modest throughout our lives may feel like building temples with laterite stone, but in the end, our own temples will remain standing as declared in 1 Corinthians three sixteen and 17. Third, the bigger and more well-defined the moat, With a constant source of water, the greater the protection from crumbling foundations and encroaching jungle forestation. Here's the third lesson. Temple moats are like Latter-day temple covenants. They keep us safe. They keep our foundation sure and firm. They block encroaching evil by pointing us in the right direction, allowing us to claim our blessings. Just as the water became a saving ingredient for the soundy foundation, so also does the living water offered us by Jesus Christ and his gospel become the saving ingredient in our lives. Fourth, Once the people left the temples, there was no one there to pull the small seedlings that would spring up through the small cracks in the sandstone blocks. There was no one to clear the weeds or choking vines. The sheer number of people that would walk the temple grounds was an impediment to new forest growth. Well, here's the lesson. We must constantly pay attention to the encroaching evils around us. For example, pornography has become an absolute plague throughout the world. Its ever-growing roots are finding every single crack in the soul of man, and they often become so large that removing them is incredibly difficult, if not impossible. There are other evils as well, such as addictions related to video gaming, gambling, drugs, alcohol, tobacco. These addictions become crushing, strangling, choking, and spiritually life-threatening vines that will squeeze out all and any light completely out of us. We must take care to properly maintain our spiritual lives so that these roots simply cannot take hold. Fifth, without a keystone to support the arch ceilings of passageways and hallways, the roofs were subject to slippage and cave-ins. While the use of keystones and arches dates nearly to 1800 years BC, the concept had not made it to the Khmer architects of their day. Here's the lesson. We are fortunate to have a keystone of our religion. It's called the Book of Mormon. The prophet Joseph stated, quote, The Book of Mormon was the most correct book on earth and the keystone of our religion. End quote. In the October 1986 General Conference, President Benson stated that, quote, There are three ways that the Book of Mormon is the keystone of our religion. It is the keystone in our witness of Christ, it is the keystone of our doctrine, it is the keystone of testimony. End quote. With the Book of Mormon as our keystone and with careful and constant study of the doctrines and principles taught throughout its pages, we can keep the roof of our testimony from caving in. That concludes episode 41. Thank you so much for listening today. I'm a firm believer that we can learn from past civilizations. We can learn from their mistakes as well as from their successes. I hope that these five lessons today might all give us something to ponder as we consider what it is that we will leave to our children and to our children's children in terms of our testimony and our faith. Until next week, keep the